All right, welcome. Good to see you all. Um, just got in last night from our little spring tri- spring break road trip, so like very excited to be caffeinated and with you. And uh, it's great to see you this morning. So we are continuing our hijacked series, and I do. B- before we do, I just want to say that leaders gathering next Sunday or <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? Gary? Next Saturday, April fifth is going to be a really profound time of. Uh, coming together at the table to discern um, how to lead forward in, in groups and such a vital part of what it means to be the church. So if, uh, if you're one of those leaders uh, that hasn't RSVP'd yet, now's the time. All right. So during the sermon, go ahead and do it. I won't even make you feel bad for that. Hey, uh, let's, uh, let's dive into the, the second part of our hijack series. We're taking a look at this idea of how sex, money, and power, good things God gives become hijacked, where we take a created thing and substitute it as an ultimate thing in our lives, in fact, making it a counterfeit God, an idol. Um, we were springing out of this book by Timothy Keller called Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Sex, Money, and Power. And it's, a, it's a good short read. I'd recommend reading it if you're interested in this idea. And Keller says that an idol is anything more fundamental than God to our happiness, meaning in life, and identity. Anything more fundamental to our happiness, meaning in life, and identity is in fact uh, a counterfeit God. And the Bible actually differentiates between gods, little g gods, and idols, right? And so gods are actual spiritual entities who stand behind the idols, these demonic forces who are embodied uh, in an idol. An idol points to the God, okay? In fact, actually, this isn't that weird because you know that Yahweh, the Creator God, the Redeeming God we meet in Jesus, also has an idol. Does anybody know who Yahweh's idol is? It's people. Yeah. The, the Hebrew word for idol, Salem, is actually also the word for image. You're made in his image. So God actually has some idols who are here to help amplify the worship of Yahweh. We're actually to point glory to God. Interesting, isn't it? So anyway, the nine o'clock didn't seem to care about that at all. And you, you also don't seem that interested in Bible 101. So okay, we're just going to keep moving. All right. So here's the, here's the interesting thing about this idea of idolatry. We tend to characterize it in our mind as an ancient problem, but in fact, the Bible is putting forward to us that it's a human problem and, and therefore it's actually a modern problem. Uh, we, we might not actually have a statue to the Greek goddess of love, Aphrodite, but in fact, many young women are driven to depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. What's happening there? Idolatry, right? Because the worship of beauty is trumping other good things like health. Similarly, we don't burn incense to Artemis or to Baal, the god of business, but we... Uh, uh, when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, you know what guys often tend to do? They perform a child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve higher places in business and gain more wealth and prestige. What's happening there? Idolatry, right? Because the worship of business and accumulation trump other good things. Here's the thing about idolatry. Anything can become an idol. Anything that we can make more ultimate in our lives than God, more fundamental to our happiness, meaning in life, and identity. Okay? And it's actually something that we set aside in our hearts and say, if I have that, I'll feel like my life has meaning. If I have that, I'll feel more valuable and more safe and secure. Now, here's the trick. This is actually a pretty complex thing. 
Um, it's not actually bad to derive happiness and, and meaning from things, but to put them in an ultimate place is when it becomes idolatry. Let, let me show you. There's like four levels of happiness here that I'm just going to play with for a second. Um, level one, basic needs, immediate gratification. Like after this, I hope I get a burrito. Okay, so. Basic, fundamental, immediate gratification, happiness. It is not bad to take joy in a burrito at 1.30, which I don't even think I'm going to get to get it until like at least 2.30. So it's almost an idol in my life right now. But uh, level two, uh, happiness. This is like personal achievement. Like I hope I do a good job in this message today, right? And and so uh, at the like I should be able to derive some pleasure out of like, hey, that went well. Like great. So we'll see. It's, I, I don't know how that's going to go yet. But uh, level three is like doing good for another person, right? Like, so like, oh man, it felt great to take my kids on a road trip this last week and give them a great experience of I-5. And, um, <laughs> uh, and then, then there's like level four, level of happiness, like transcendence. Like I am participating in the ultimate good. Right? And it's something that I can anchor my meaning and worth and identity in. Now, if I put... A level one thing, like a burrito, up at level four, I've committed idolatry, right? Like I've actually said, I'm a burrito-eating Christian, right? Like I've actually made the, the thing that I want to eat more important than the God that I serve, right? So, or my sermon, or your work, or how you're parenting your kid, or how you're performing at whatever it is that you think is important. When you move that up to level four, it becomes... A, a temptation toward idolatry. Are, are, are you tracking with me? Right. So these these aren't bad things to find happiness in and gratification in, but as they move up the ladder to the wrong place, it's it's actually a really dangerous thing. Now here's the key to seeing idolatry in your life. It, it happens when you realize that idols are rarely, if ever, bad things in and of themselves. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He says this in his book Mere Christianity. He says. It is a mistake to think that some of our impulses, say mother love or patriotism, are good and others, like sex or the fighting instinct, are bad. There are situations in which it is the duty of a married man to encourage his sexual impulse and of a soldier to encourage his fighting instinct. There are also occasions on which a mother's love for her own children or a man's love for his own country have to be suppressed or they will lead to unfairness towards other people's children or countries. He goes on to say on the next page that um, you can compare it something to like a piano. See, a piano has two kinds of notes. The right notes and the wrong notes. Okay? <laughs> this is what Lewis says. Right? And so every single one of them is the right note at, at one time and the wrong note at another. See, see, Lewis is saying we don't do idolatry out of uh, bad things. We take good things that become hijacked and become ultimate things. And so in this series, we're taking a look at sex, power, and money, and all of those things in the right context, submitted to the heart of God, are beautiful things. And we learned last week something about God's heart for sexuality to be a uniting thing between a covenant relationship between a husband and wife. And and, and power also is something God gives and delights in, and so is money, but each of these things is also a potential monstrosity when it's taken out of context and out of submission to God's heart. Is this making sense? All right. So today we're going to explore this this second counterfeit God, the God of power, the idol of power. 
And, and, and when it comes to power issues, I kind of just don't know where else to start than with a dead German philosopher. So uh, let's, let's take a look here at Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, how many of you knew his name was pronounced Nietzsche? Right? Okay, it's like, hey, Mr. Nietzsche, it's nice to meet you. And uh, that's how you can kind of remember it. Uh, and I thought, I just wanted to show you his mustache because, like, this would make the most hip person in Portland blush. Like, I wish I had facial hair like that. So, anyway, it's pretty cool, I think. So Friedrich Nietzsche was a, a 19th century German philosopher who coined the famous phrase, God is dead, right? It actually sounds cooler in German. It was a rhyme, uh, Gott is taught. But anyways, it's a, God is dead was this kind of phrase that's become famous and it's attached to Nietzsche. And the funny thing about this is it was actually a cultural observation for him that as he looked at his peers, at, at his society, he, he came to the conclusion that God was essentially dead among even the religious. He observed that um, where people might be outwardly religious, they were so fully occupied in their own business and pleasure that they had no functional relationship with a transcendent God. And so in a world where the Enlightenment movement was at its apex... Um, where there was a worldview that said there is no transcendent God with whom we can encounter, but there is only the imminent, the right now, the what we can see, feel, touch, and experience. Um, he said in that kind of worldview where there is no God, then humans become godlike. They become godlike in that they are left alone to shape their own reality. And the dark side of this realization, though, is that only the strong will survive if that is your worldview. See, um, this leads people to most fundamentally seek power. And the problem with the world, according to Nietzsche, isn't evil because you can't actually know it. Evil isn't the problem with the world. Weakness is the problem with the world, according to his thought. Are you tracking so far? So no God, right? no transcendent, just right now. Problem's not evil, it's actually weakness. So it leads you to seek power, leads to his famous idiom, the will to power. Right? And it's actually very easy to see how Nietzsche's thinking in the 19th century grew to shape the thinking in his country in the 20th century. Right? Anybody have any idea what that might have sparked? Right? I heard an aha, but nobody said anything. What? Yeah, the Nazi party, right, is fairly influenced by this idea of a will to power. And so, uh, on one hand, this this idolization of power is obviously evil when you connect it to the Nazis. But it's also frequently hidden and often praised in our own society. One cultural critic, Mark Sayers, describing the ways that our society reflects Nietzsche's projection, says this. Um, hang with me for a second. He says, yet I believe if Nietzsche was alive, he would point at our television screens full of the healthy, the beautiful, the young, at our sports and ele that elevate and laud the muscular, at our politics that reward the strong and the powerful, who would force us to look at our culture of real and passive aggression in which individuals compete against each other in a battle of wills in the home and in the markets and in the workplace. His face would redden, his veins would pop with spittle, uh, and spittle would catch on his mustache. There it is again. And as Nietzsche... Screaming in exasperation would point out our elderly homes, our abortion clinics, our battlefields, our refugee camps, and the starving millions of the two-thirds world. Nietzsche would uh, call us hypocrites as he laughed at our claims of being a society of freedom, justice, compassion, and tolerance. Wow. 
quite the critique, isn't it? And, and, and what Sayers, I think, is getting at here is that the counterfeit God of power is alive and well in our own backyard and oftentimes in our very own hearts. Now, keep in mind here that we're not talking about good power, like the power God gives. God is favorable towards power, isn't he? Because it says in Ephesians 1.19 that the power that raised Christ from the dead is actually in us. Like God's into this, right? He wants to empower his people. But what happens when power gets hijacked and becomes an idol taken away from the context of service to God? So we're going to take a look today at three things in the book of Daniel. Okay? So we're jumping from dead German guy now to a dead Babylonian guy. So, all right. The book of Daniel. Turn to chapter 2 with me. We're going to take a look at three things. The warning signs that you have a uh, power idolatry the root of power idolatry, and then the cure for power idolatry. So the first thing, the warning signs that uh, power has been hijacked in your life. Daniel 2. In the 6th century before Christ, 500 years before Jesus, the Babylonian Empire rose to prominence, and they, they conquered Assyria and Egypt, and they were the dominant world power, okay? And, and you can read about this in Second Kings 24 and 25, where Jerusalem is sacked by uh, Babylon. And the first time the Babylonians invaded Israel, they carted off a whole bunch of like kind of the top class group of people. They exiled people like scholars and political leaders and military leaders and artists, and they all got exiled over to Babylon right, to work for the Babylonian empire. And it, at the time, Babylon king and general Nebuchadnezzar was at the helm of the entire known world. He was reigning supreme over almost the, uh, every people group within reach. And in Daniel, we learn about how this most powerful guy in the world ends up with a sleeping problem one night because God invades his dreams. Check it out. Daniel, 1 verse, or Daniel 2 verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. And so the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell them what he had dreamed. Uh, when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. So Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and it's, it's messing with him. And we find out later what the dream is. Uh, it, it's this image of a towering figure. Okay, this, this, this great figure, this maybe even a projection of what Nebuchadnezzar wants to, the world to see in him. All right? This impregnable giant towering over the world. But nevertheless, this towering figure is made of all kinds of metals, silver, gold, bronze, iron. But it has these feet that are half made of baked clay. Okay, and, and he has this image where the feet are crushed and the entire thing comes crashing down. Okay. So, this is freaking him out. Nebuchadnezzar wakes up, and he's troubled, and so he threatens his whole group of advisors. And he says this, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into rubble. He has a will to power. He's been reading Nietzsche, and he... Uh, it's like, you're right. This is, this is the way it works. Um, no, not really. Uh, but if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it to me. So what the story is getting at so far is that the most powerful man in the known universe, after conquering his competitors um, and beating other countries into submission and servitude, is in fact a very insecure man. Nebuchadnezzar is an insecure guy. You don't threaten your friends when you're secure. 
do you? That's just not a move you make when you're at home in your own skin. Right? Like you, you just don't do that. And so he's insecure at the core, and, and his he's, his troubled mind and death threats reveal the level of suspicion that he has and the level of insecurity he has towards anyone who might try and take power from him. Now, why is he an insecure king? I, I would submit to you this morning that because uh, when power becomes an idol in in our lives, it comes with a couple of friends: insecurity and fear. Um, see, idolizing power is always about control. It's often about more than that, but it's never less than that. And, and control says this. When I'm grasping for control, my heart is saying, I have to have power in this situation. I have to have power over this relationship. I have to have power in this place. And, and idolizing power becomes about control because idolizing power gives us the illusion that we are actually in control. That's why we idolize power. That's what we really want is control. And so we idolize power at work to control our position. We idolize power among the powerful to secure our influence. We idolize power in relationships to control the way we're perceived and treated. We idolize power over kids because we want control over their behavior so it doesn't inconvenience us. Nations escalate power and maintain control over resources and on and on it goes. See, power, when turned into an idol, leads us to grasp at control where we can. And this is, keep in mind, this is when power goes bad. This is when power is hijacked. Control is not always bad, right? Like think of a manager. You want your employees to work a certain way, right? But when it becomes a hijacked thing, you grasp for it rather than steward it. And sometimes this happens in very subtle ways, okay? Um, it, little passive-aggressive remarks or manipulations keep us in control in little ways, right? And it helps us to avoid things we don't like. Um, my wife told me a story the other day about our kids. She took them to the Children's Museum. Anybody been to the Children's Museum so far? Okay. So um, there's this really cool, like, theater in the Children's Museum. There's, like, a box office with tickets, and then there's a backstage portion and curtains and an amphitheater that looks down on the, uh, the, the theater, and it's pretty cool. And for whatever reason, my daughter uh, really likes uh, to run the box office. I, 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 don't, I don't get that. Like, there's a whole stage over it. Anyway, uh, so she, she was trying to get all the adults to participate in her racket and get, uh, like, tickets for the show. And she announced several times the tickets were available and they were going on sale and you could get them discounted. Like, no, but nobody was getting in on the tickets. And she, she was going to adult to adult and starting to say, like, you need tickets for the show. Uh, like I'm thinking of that scene in Indiana Jones where he like punches that guy and throws him out the blimp and he's like, no ticket. And everybody was like, here. Anyway, so um, this is kind of like what's going on here. Like she's getting kind of frustrated. She's realizing nobody is participating in her play. And a moment or two went by and uh, she hops up on stage and she says, can I have your attention, please? I want you all to know that there is not going to be a performance today because none of you got tickets. She shut the curtains and walked off stage. Right? It's just a great moment. And, and I think my daughter's like a far cry from becoming Darth Vader. I do. But, but that's a power and control move, isn't it? Like you're not playing my game the way I want, so I'm, no, there's not gonna be a performance today. Right. <clears throat> just, just a little, yeah, you know, you, then you, you grow that up and you work for TSA and make people take their shoes off and you're gonna show me your ID right now. Anyway, I don't, I'm sorry. <clears throat> All right, anyway, 
So um, the first warning sign that you have a power idol in your life is when you're grasping for control, you have to have control. But there's other things that come along with a power idol. And, and that's when you, when you bow at the altar of power, the other thing that comes with it is that you always have to have an anxious eye open for anything that would undo the control that you've grasped for. And so whether it's imperial power like Nebuchadnezzar or relational power over a group of friends, it comes at the price of fear and an ever-deepening insecurity. And fear and insecurity say, I can't lose power. Right? And this is, this is where we play mind games all day long. Like, what if? What if I'm not in control? Right? Many seek positions of power because they want to serve, uh, but also a lot of people seek positions of power because they're afraid of not having it. And even, even if fear isn't the reason that you seek power, it almost always comes with the territory of having it. Um, those in power are often know that others are jealous of it. And so the higher you climb, the higher you're capable of falling, falling, thus Nebuchadnezzar's death threats. See, a king who knew his own power was a gift of grace, who, who ruled justly, wouldn't have to be insecure, right? They wouldn't have to worry about being, power being taken because they knew that it was given. And uh, you think about examples of rulers with great, who exercise power wisely. Think of people like Lincoln, right? This is a man who, who exercised power brilliantly and wisely and to bring about something righteous rather than just what he wanted. Now, the dream of the Babylonian king was forcing his insecurity to the surface. And, and Nebuchadnezzar becomes this great case study in what the 20th century theologian Reinhold Niebuhr described in his work, The Nature and Destiny of Man. And he says this, that man at the core under sin is insecure. He seeks to overcome his insecurity by a will to power by pretending that he is not limited. Ever seen somebody who thinks that they're not limited? It's a, it's a trip, isn't it? Um, and so he says that the original temptation in the garden was this moment when Satan lured mankind into resenting the limits that the creator God had set on them. And so seeking to be like God was a means of taking power of their own destiny rather than trusting God's power and that they were already like him and that their destiny was secure in his hands. See, when any of us make that shift, where, uh, whether it's as large as Nebuchadnezzar's schemes of world domination or as small as a petty passive-aggressive phrase to keep the focus on somebody else is the problem, power and control become lifted to this place of idolatry because deep down we don't think God can be trusted. See, this is a core issue in idolizing power. When we don't really think that God is trustworthy, we think that power is better in our hands than in his. See, it also comes with this distrust of God's goodness. It says, I can't really know that God will act for my benefit. And so this is this third warning sign that power has been hijacked in your life. Niebuhr actually said that people's sense of powerlessness ultimately stems from our alienation from God. And when you've been alienated from somebody, the first thing to go is trust. See, the, the thing that we are left to is this ever-growing insecurity because we're separated from the one who alone can give us lasting security, identity, and meaning. And so, rather than seeking to secure ourselves in God, we seek it in controlling our own lives. Um, so that's, that's the warning signs that you have power idolatry going on. Now, let's look deeper at the root of it. See, at the, at the story, in the story of Nebuchadnezzar, 
um, it, it progresses. And, and we find that nobody could give the advice that he was looking for. Nobody could interpret the dream. So he calls up Daniel. Actually, Daniel comes forward. And he's one of these guys. He's been carted off from Jerusalem. And God gave him the power not only to tell the king the content of his dream, but to tell him its meaning. And he says this in chapter 2, verse 31. Your, your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was of pure gold, the chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands, and it struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and smashed them. And the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without even leaving a trace. But the rock that was struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This statue conveys a message to Nebuchadnezzar. See, it represents all the kingdoms of the earth. And it appears as a giant idol because it represents the idolization of power and achievement. And all human civilization, commerce, culture, rule, power, when exercised by humans for their own glory. And in contrast to the precious metals of each of these kingdoms, the thing that reduced them to rubble was a humble stone, not cut by human hands, but it's from God. Though it was less valuable than all the other metals, it was more powerful. And in Daniel's words, it is the kingdom of God. In verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. What in the world is going on here? This dream is ultimately a call for humility to Nebuchadnezzar. See, Nebuchadnezzar is being asked to change his God concept. See, as a pagan, uh, the, the king would have believed in pluralism, that there were many gods and supernatural forces in the world, and he would have been right because there were many demonic forces in the world that offered power, but in the end offered little promise. And it will ultimately be trumped by the true God. And he, however, had not believed that there was one preeminent, all-powerful God to whom everyone was accountable, including himself. And he was being told that there was one God who was supreme and sovereign and to whom he was responsible for his use of power. And it seems at first that Nebuchadnezzar accepted the message. It says this in verse 46, The king Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and order and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. Then the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. So what's going on here? The most powerful man in the world falls prostrate before the God of Israel. He's, he's beginning a journey towards humility. He's doing something that would have never happened for an empire like, emperor like him. Right? He's not a, his, his self-exalting pride would have never prostrated himself before the God of a conquered people. But get this, friends. At the heart of the idolization of power is pride. Not the good kind of pride that says, hey, I did a good job, level two happiness. But the bad kind of pride that says, it's all about me. I'm great. And it lives apart from gratitude. And, and this is really the root issue. And this is also the thing that I think is so hard to get at. When we get to our own power and control issues, we often forget that it comes from a, an over-importance of self. C.S. Lewis says this about pride. He says, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else. 
and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they themselves are guilty. The more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Why? Because you know what? Pride does not share power, friends. We see this played out in uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, right? That, That one ring of power, right? When it corrupts Gollum and he becomes this kind of inhuman thing, he won't tolerate the ring belonging to Frodo. And ultimately it will lead to his own demise because that's what pride does. It leads to our own demise. And so he'll end up dying for the ring. I hope that wasn't a spoiler for you because, well, I don't know where you've been for the last 15 years. So, um, <clears throat> All right, so the, the work of humility begins for Nebuchadnezzar here. And it's the same for us. If we don't want control and power to be a thing that's hijacked in our lives and becomes ultimate for our happiness and identity, then we have to do a full assault on our pride. But we see pride working out in all kinds of tricky ways, right? Prideful people at the core idolize power and won't tolerate being wrong. Have you ever noticed that? You, you, you can't actually argue with a prideful person, at least not into a different opinion, because they will always find a way to be right, won't they? Right? Pr- pride will also always find its way into the church, won't it? Uh, and, and this is why it's so easy for it to find its way into the church, because it's so easy to be doctrinally right and relationally wrong. There's no work there. There's no effort there. Uh, power-seeking people are often at home in religion because nothing massages pride quite like the sense of being proud of your own righteousness. You think power and control issues are at home in the church? Yeah, They shouldn't be, but they're here, aren't they? Because at the core, it exalts our own self-importance. At the core, the power worshiper has a heart that's bent in on its own self. Proud to be seen as better and more correct and more achieved and more successful and glorious than the other. It's a comparison game. And power idolatry, I would submit to you, looks a lot less like an ancient emperor than it does a Christian whose discovery of something true and transcendent has gone to his head. And the antidote is humility before the cross, which brings us to the third thing that we'll see this morning, which is what's the cure for power idolatry? Well, Nebuchadnezzar continues down this path of taking credit for his own power and achievement. In chapter 3, he sets up this statue. It's made out of gold, and he tells everybody in Babylon, come worship this image of me. Right? Remember this story? What, what happens if you don't worship the image? You're going in the fire. You're toast, right? And remember those four guys that went in the fire and they came out unscathed, right? It's a cool little story. Uh, it's another sermon. So, has Nebuchadnezzar learned his lesson? <laughs> no. <laughs> right? Humble people don't tell other people to worship their portrait. <laughs> uh, so, that's just awkward. And so, again, in chapter 4, he has another dream. Uh, And it says that he was at home, contented and prosperous. He's insulated in his pride. And the dream before was an academic lesson in one sense. It dealt broadly with the character of God and the character of human power. But now the dream is personal. Once again, he summoned Daniel to tell him its meaning. And the vision this time at first was beautiful. It was this picture of a great tree. And it was full of fruit and leaves and birds and animals were resting in the tree. And and it was this prosperous tree. But then a voice comes and suddenly it's ordered to be chopped down. And only a stump would remain with its fruit and leaves and birds scattered. All right, Daniel then comes and interprets a dream. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, 
you're the tree. It's you, dude. You're dreaming about yourself and what God's going to do. He'll cut down the tree. He'll cut you down. You'll lose your power, power and you'll, you'll be lowered to the place of the animals. He says this in verse 24, chapter 4, verse 24. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree that the Most High has issued against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on the earth and give them, or I'm sorry, and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots acknowledges, or uh, means that your kingdom will be restored when you have acknowledged that heaven rules. Therefore, Your Majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right. And your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. This message in a very rough sketch begins to point us to the gospel, friends. Uh, It begins to tell us that what we have is a result of God's grace, not our own greatness and not our own efforts to earn. See, um, You didn't earn this kingdom, pal. That's the message. Power that God gives isn't just for you. And it it isn't what makes you great. It's God's grace that makes you great. And you're called to use your power in partnership with him, not for yourself. But see, the king wouldn't turn from his power idolatry and his self-absorption. In verse 29, we read this. At twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, he said... Is not this great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? Right? This is my cocky voice. Uh, by, my pow- by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Okay. I mean, this is what's going on. He's out cruising on the roof and he's like, yeah, I did this. I made it. It's awesome. Check out my beard. It's huge. Grew it myself. Right? Like, that's kind of like... The, and he does. He has this really cool beard. I had an image and I forgot to put it in the slideshow. So, it, And what's the deal, right? This guy is up there taking credit for everything in his life. But he's bought into the illusion that his power really gives him control. And, and so, verse 31, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, O King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from all the people. And it repeats the same message that Daniel had already interpreted for him. And Nebuchadnezzar, after continuing to credit himself with his power and greatness, was immediately taken from his power. And he he falls into what appears to be this mental illness. And he goes on for about a year, too deranged to even live in his palace. Like, he becomes so dehumanized that he is out hanging out with the animals, eating grass. The greatest man in the 6th century B.C., becomes a dog. Remarkable, isn't it? And so he, he learns this lessons and, lesson and, and we, we continue on our own path only to find we end up losing what we think we've earned or are entitled to. Or we can turn to God who summons us to embrace the source of our power. Right? He, he doesn't call us to be weaklings. Right? He doesn't say, oh, I want you to leave church today and go, I'm weak, I can't do anything. Right? He wants you to leave here going, I know the real source of power. Right? And it's not from myself. And I know that it's for God. And then we end up receiving back infinitely more than we ever could have obtained by our own work. So after a time, it appears that something like this happens 
to the deranged king. And he comes to his senses and he says this, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High and I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. He's had a, he's had a, a shift in perspective, hasn't he? He's realized where real power is coming from. And at that time, he says, that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. The glory of his kingdom, not the glory of himself. Interesting. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and I became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right. Sounds like he's beginning to trust that God is good. Interesting. So what do we need to do, friends? We need to actually learn to do what Nebuchadnezzar ultimately did, which is rather than looking at our own selves, looking inwardly, we look upward towards God and we believe in his achievement rather than our achievement. See, we we need to look towards the God who gives power to be embraced for his purposes, not our own. We need to learn the gospel afresh. The gospel that cuts us down at one moment, just like Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and also restores us the next. It cuts us down by saying, we are in fact powerless to give ourselves meaning and happiness and identity because we're in fact alienated from the God, the only one who can give it. And we are in fact more wicked than we ever dared imagine. But it also restores us by telling us that God is powerful and he's for us. He reconciles us to himself through his son, making us more valued and accepted and even more powerful than we had ever hoped because it's his power at work in us, the power that rose Christ from the dead. And what he wants to do in you is a work of transformation and change so that your character is fundamentally different. You see, the God of all power was willingly emptied of all power. The the cure for a power idol is to look squarely at Jesus and realize that he came in weakness, that he gave up position, he gave up privilege and power. He poured out his life for the sake of the world that hated him. And he didn't come to be served, as Mark 10 says, but to serve and offer his life as a ransom for many. See, that's what power does in God's hands. It serves the other. And so the only way to heal Uh, Our will to power is to look at Jesus and believe him. Not to look at him and believe in him like we believe in Santa or in a theological math equation, but believe him personally and profoundly as God in the flesh, crucified to reconcile you, raised to heal you, ruling at the right hand of God as the king of the universe. It's by looking at Jesus that we find that we're actually secure enough in God's power that we don't have to live grasping for it. That we don't have to be insecure and that we can, in fact, trust God. That's what the cross shows us. That God's so good, you can trust him to act for your benefit, even if it means his life. And by looking at Jesus' example, we find out actually what to do when he gives us power. That we use it to serve and to move his kingdom forward. And we do it humbly and sacrificially and with love. It's only through Jesus that power can be put right in our life from the ways that we've hijacked it. And it happens when we view it in light of the cross. And that's what we're going to do again this morning. We're going to come to the cross again, where we do it now symbolically at the Lord's table, where we proclaim God's power is actually profoundly shown in his weakness 
and vulnerability, where He gave His body and shed His blood to forgive and to reconcile and redeem and restore. So will you come to the table with me, friends, this morning to take the elements, to commit to walking humbly, secure in God's power found in Christ, extended to you through this table that represents His body and blood. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your Son, Jesus. True God, true power, manifest to redeem. So we come in faith to your table now to receive these tangible things that show us afresh and remind us who you are, your trustworthiness, and your power for us who believe. We thank you for Jesus Christ, his body and blood, and we embrace it again this morning through this act of worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Come forward, grab the bread and the cup from the table this morning, and take it on your own as we worship together.